Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. On this episode, Soleil and I speak with Linda Shu, an internal medicine doctor, cooking teacher, and author of her first cookbook, Spice Box Kitchen. I didn't have to go to medical school to tell people how to cook greens. And yet, this is actually the most powerful innovation that I've made as a doctor. All right, so there's a lot packed into this episode. We talk about the ancient practice of food as medicine. We talk about that really interesting journey she took from being a doctor to, you know, being a chef and a cookbook author. And we also talk about the power of her prescription pad which she uses to motivate patients towards better eating habits. So we're excited for everyone to hear this interview. We hope you take something away from it. And here you go. So one anecdote in Spicebox Kitchen that I love is your story of prescribing kale chips, like a recipe to a patient. And I feel like that's such a great encapsulation of what you do. So would you mind telling us that story? So I was looking for literally another tool in my toolkit, another tool in my, you know, my figurative doctor's bag. Nobody really has one these days, but I literally had all these prescription pads. And I thought, all I ever do is write for more prescriptions, for more blood pressure meds, for cholesterol medicine, diabetes meds. And of course, you know, we have to, I'm not saying that we cannot, we have to take medications away from people at all. But I thought, what else can I use this for so that it's official, right? So there's, there is a, a distinct power in a doctor's signature on a prescription pad and what it says on it. It becomes not mandate, but this is a very strong and very official recommendation. And I think it symbolizes my knowledge and uh, as a medical doctor and all of my training. So it's more than just writing a grocery list. And so I, this was kind of an experiment. I thought, okay, I'll try this with a patient that I know well and who I know has a sense of humor and, and um, <laughs> might not feel really weirded out by this. And um, I remember that patient was a guy who he didn't actually work in food professionally, but he loved food and he was a volunteer at the local farmer's market. And he had a lot of struggles with all the stuff that we all have, all the chronic illnesses related to food, again, blood pressure, cholesterol. Um, and I think he was pre-diabetic. And so in most of the visits I'd had with him over years, it was kind of like, okay, blood pressure is okay, continue this. Cholesterol is still a little bit high. What are you eating? Continue this prescription, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, you got to lose some weight or else you're going to have diabetes one day soon. So then I thought, well, I'm more interested in hearing actually about the specifics of what was he eating? What did he like about the farmer's market? And so he told me, you know, the weekend before that there were all these great mushrooms and he told me, you know, at great length of how he enjoyed cooking them and a lot of butter, all this stuff. And he was very excited. And when you're trying to connect with somebody about anything, either change your mind or just connect, it's that moment of excitement is, is your opening, right? So he was excited in talking about his kind of recipe, his way of enjoying produce, which is great. Mushrooms are great. And so... And I said, that sounds really good. Um, you know, what other vegetables do you like? And he's like, oh, you know, I, I know that you're going to tell me to eat more green vegetables. I don't really like them. I was like, well, what do you like to eat? Are you a salty snacker or a sweet snacker? Right? This is, there's often a divide. And he's like, oh, yeah, chips. I, I just eat chips all night long when I'm watching TV. And I was like, well... I have an idea for you. So this is how the kale chips came about. I was like, if you like chips, I know this is different, but if you'll just try this, it'll take 10 minutes of your time. The next time you're getting ready to watch TV, 
why don't you try this recipe for kale chips? They will have that same salty satisfaction that you like from potato chips. They won't be as crunchy, but they'll be crisp and um, they're much better for you. And I think it might be a way that you can start to enjoy some greens. And he was like, huh, you know, his eyes kind of were like, wow, maybe you're a little crazy. <laughs> but but he wasn't offended and he was intrigued because it was kind of like I was sort of speaking his language with this. And it wasn't just, again, like kind of a lecture of you got to stop doing that. No more potato chips for you ever. But like if you like this, you'll like this better. Right. And I will be happier because I know it's going to help your health. And um, so that emboldened me. And so then I also came up my second recipe that went on a prescription pad was for the sweets snacker, the person with a sweet tooth. And often that person with a sweet tooth who is eating something mindlessly while they're watching TV at night eats ice cream. And so that became a recipe for, you know, banana and ice cream, where you just basically freeze over ripe bananas that otherwise would go into uh, these days, pandemic banana bread, <laughs> um, and then whiz them up in a food processor. And you can add, add anything, nuts, chocolate, berries, spices. Um, and so that was my second recipe. And I have to say, the, I still use both of these and I've converted both of those into electronic prescriptions now so that they're ready to go. And so that's another thing, you know, not just reaching people when they're kind of feeling excited or emotional, but doing something that's a little bit off <laughs> gets people's attention. Oh, wow. It feels very um, avant-garde, right? Like that's how the avant-garde <laughs> reaches people too, just by like freaking them out. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, this is like responsible freaking out. That's kind of how I am as a person. Like, I, I like the idea of doing crazy things, but I'm still kind of afraid to do that <laughs> um, with my professional reputation. And so, and so I, but I, I still believe in that power of just, yeah, ex exactly as you said, in the avant garde, freaking them out so they pay attention, their eyes are open. That's very San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I remember around 2017, 2018. There were a bunch of stories that I used to see that were like this emerging field of culinary medicine and people writing about it and talking about what it, uh, you know, what it consisted of. I'd be curious from you to <laughs> talk about what is culinary medicine and how has it changed over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, if you think about it, Culinary medicine is a new name, but it's for a very old concept, right? That we are what we eat and food really is medicine. It was our first medicine. So if you want to think about the beginning, it really goes back to like Hippocrates, right? <laughs> Father of modern medicine, ancient right. Greeks, um, and also in other traditions, traditional Chinese medicine um, and Ayurveda. All of these are rich, really the original culinary medicine. Well, I don't think ancient Greek medicine with, you know, leeches and, and balancing the humors is still <laughs> practice these days. But Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine both still, if they're if they're being practiced in the way that they were meant to be, haven't changed all that much from mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. And um and and those two systems, which I only have, you know, um a very superficial understanding of, but would love to know more, um, really use two things. They balance people's constitutions and that's measured by things like, you know, their their pulse, um, various other physical traits. Um, they balance that against the types of foods and the properties that they believe those foods should have. Um, and so these ideas have been around for millennia. Um, and it's just that people, I think as we modernize and kind of aim for technology, 
as what we consider advances have often forgotten about this. So mm. culinary medicine as a you know field, I think it sounds very official, right? It's, it sounds a little mm. bit strange also and avant-garde, um, but, but it also so, sounds like a specialty, right? So if we can categorize it in a way in the Western medical lexicon, it sounds like another specialty. And I and there are probably some people who would like to see it become something that you can become board certified in. But truly what it is and it's, it's modern definition, which um, I think was coined by one of my mentors and inspirations, John LaPuma. He defines it, and I think it's the best and most succinct definition, as combining the art of food and cooking with the science of medicine and nutrition. Mm. Um, and so that's really what it is, but it really is just food is medicine, right? So that we should not actually forget that if we if we fail to address food and what we put into our mouths as being at the root of our health and wellness and um, having the power to affect all disease processes, we're never going to really make the impact that we can for ourselves or, you know, as a medical provider for our patients in their health. We can't, no matter what we do with all the medications in the world, you're not going to feel good and we're not going to do our best to optimize your health. You need both. That's, that's really the key. When I first wrote that kale, kale chip prescription, that was in 2012. So many years went by in that time and I had time to learn about lots of stuff. And yet at that time, it, it was a radical idea. I really felt like I better not let too many people at work know that I'm doing this <laughs> because maybe I'll get in trouble. Maybe this is maybe this is malpractice to be using my prescription <laughs> pad for this. Um, and then I really think that people thought it was a little bit crazy. I can't say that I had many colleagues who were on board. It took it took some years. Um, and things are, are have improved over time as more and more people have gotten interested in this concept. So Justin, that's my very long answer to what is culinary medicine and how has that changed over time? Basically, it's been around forever, but there has been increasing interest. And I, I would say over the last three to five years, more and more. So how do you explain the disconnect um, between, you know, like the absence of nutritional information in like medical schools, you know, previously and still largely um, and also just the, you know, the the relative rarity, you know, you spoke to how it changed, like and how there are more people interested in culinary medicine. But like still there seems to be a big gap between like the historical sort of ancient practices of like Ayurveda and like now. So how do you explain that gap? Yeah, I would say that the overall answer, two-word answer to that is Western medicine. And Western medicine, as it's practiced in the Western world, relies upon licensure. And licensure is based upon things that are considered scientific, um, for which we have evidence and um, that can be tested, right? <laughs> so we do, we, we take a lot of tests as medical trainees. Um, and I think because of that, things which are explained by other thought systems, which include Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, they're thought not to be science. I think it's as simple as that. So if they're not thought to be science, then we're not going to teach it. That's one thing. Now, nutrition is a science. Um, I think that is a slightly different reason why mm -hmm. it's it's not integrated into medical school. Now, I you know to be fair, there there is so much that we have to learn as doctors and there's only a limited amount of time, which is still a long, long amount of time and 
essentially everyone's young adulthood who becomes a doctor, <laughs> speaking from personal experience. Um, and so there's not time for everything. And so I think when decisions are made um, in what goes into the curriculum, that is one of the considerations. Like, although I, I, I would say maybe we don't need to really know organic chemistry. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but at any rate, um, it's thought to be, you know, maybe more than we need to know because there are people who do this registered dietitians as their job and they are frankly better, right? I'm not a registered dietitian. I don't have that exact training that they do in terms of all the things that they do. That's not a reason not to educate us to the extent that we should know so that we can most effectively partner with dietitian. I think that's the goal. And, you know, we will use our skills of, you know, learning how to help people with behavior change. We will use our access to people as someone who has some influence as the doctor to a patient, um, but we still need to have someone else's expertise. Unfortunately, like uh, at least in this country and, and I'm assuming in other sort of, in other parts of the Western world, if not elsewhere, it's just a very kind of formal conservative institution. And, and so that's why, slightly avant-garde ideas don't fit in as well. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Justin Phillips, and we're back with Linda Shu, an internal medicine doctor, cooking teacher, and author of her first cookbook, Spice Box Kitchen. So... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're practicing is, for instance, you go to the doctor and they give you like the handout that says like eat more leafy greens and that's sort of it. Um, what you're doing yeah. is telling people how to eat the greens, essentially. Does that make right. sense? Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That. Yes. Thank you. I I tend not to be very succinct, but you, you honed in on it. That's basically <laughs> it. It was my, you know, I, I'm someone who used to do bench research, you know, I was a scientist first, and also thought, I think, along these lines that innovation meant science and technology and all this stuff. And not against that at all. But truly, that's not where my passion is now at all. But I and so I like to say this is not rocket science. This is not brain surgery. In fact, I didn't have to go to medical school to tell people how to cook greens, right? I didn't need to do that at all. And yet I actually thought this is actually the most powerful innovation that I've made as a doctor. There are lots of doctors out there who could have done this, but most doctors don't do this. And I thought just like with anything else, we are all like subject to information overload. We're all given too many handouts. There are too many emails. How much of that do you actually read and retain? And even if you want to, let's say you are the patient who is told to eat more leafy greens. You look at the list, you're like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll pick some of this stuff up when I go to the grocery store the next time. You bring it home and you're, you're kind of like, oh, I don't usually eat this. What do I do with this? And then it would take many more steps to go from being that sort of non-home cook who doesn't, or the person who doesn't cook vegetables to, I guess I'll look up a recipe to, I guess I'll figure out how to cook this recipe, right? Because a recipe is still only a list of instructions and ingredients. Um, and so I thought, why not cut out the middleman? Let me actually show you 
let me inspire you. If you eat this and you like this, you're going to do it. Once you see how easy it is, once you've done it, um, you know, the beauty of teaching cooking, what's so exciting for me is that we make mistakes all the time and it's not a disaster. It's not the end of the world, but there are, you know, there, it's all a learning opportunity. So like, okay, you didn't, make sure there wasn't enough moisture when you cook those greens and that's why they're still kind of undercooked and yet burnt at the same time um, so this is how we fix that we can either fix this now or let's start over and next time you'll do this people need actual literally it's not to be spoon-fed it's to actually like come with me come cook next to me and we'll figure this out together and make sure that you like eating this so okay how is all of this different from the sort of broader trend of like wellness and, you know, hiding diet culture behind wellness? You know, like it, it, it is very mired in like fat phobia and there is certainly a history of fat people having really bad experiences with doctors who just tell them like stop being fat for like everything. Um, so can you articulate <laughs> mm -hmm. the difference? Oh, I hope that it's thought to be completely separate from all of that, to be honest. I mean, I think that whole wellness culture is actually pretty modern, you know? I think that's about 10 years old. There's always been diet culture separate, but this whole new, like all encompassing wellness culture, which is very monolithic and very kind of North American and wealthy and white, all of those things, and excludes a lot of people. I'm, I'm not part of that. <laughs> I think the way that I get away from that is I'm really, I love food. I've thought about in great detail about what does it take for most people to be healthier? So I'm talking about health as in metabolic health, health as in, do you feel good? That's the wellness I'm interested in. And no matter how you eat, whether you're completely vegan or plant-based or just eating some vegetables or mostly plants, whatever it is, in general, if you're eating kind of more minimally processed food that you're cooking yourself at home, that you have control over the ingredients, that you have control over the selection of your ingredients, and that truly is mostly plants, you're going to feel better. So that is what defines wellness for me. I um, deliberately don't include calorie counts um, in my recipes. That was a kind of a, a big thing to convince people that this is going to be a healthy cookbook, but it's not going to have calorie counts because... While portion control is important, I think that we can accomplish that by, by having mainly vegetables or mainly high fiber foods because you're going to be full. That's the best way to accomplish portion control. It's like literally be mindful, eat what you like. If it's mainly plants, you're going to stop when you're full. And, um, and that's all you need to do for portion control. I also make it very clear that the food that I encourage my patients and my students to eat and in my cookbook is that it's not a diet. It's not meant to have you lose weight. You might lose weight. Um, and that would be a great bonus if, that, if that's important for you. But that's not the plan here. Again, I am not that smart. If I wanted to make a lot of money, I would actually invent a diet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm just a very honest person. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend that there is a one size fits all diet that is going to make people lose weight. That makes sense. It's never going to happen. As a doctor, right, who who interfaces with people, patients, how do you handle the diet conversation or like the food conversation in a way that is, I guess, gentler than people generally uh, experience? Yeah, this is, it's always, it's a work in progress and it's very individual, right? So the, the best way to do it, though, is truly just kind of figure out where people are on their journey and 
I, I will, I look at people's vital signs, right? Their weight is part of the vital sign. The BMI or body mass index is, part, is one of the vital signs. It's it's something that I will note and I will put on people's problem list. I, I'm not going to pretend it's not there, but I will then ask, um, you know, do you want to talk about your weight? And if the answer is no, then I'm like, okay. Now, if the answer is yes, I, I chose you because I know that you're, you know, you're a nutritionist. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not a nutritionist. I have gotten some additional training in nutrition. I'm very interested, um, but mainly I'm a cook and I love food and I am really happy to work with you however you want that to be with this. And so I think what kind of differentiates like the tools that I keep in my toolkit is I have like a gazillion, you know, at my fingertips lists of, you know, Yes, you look like you could benefit from more magnesium. Here's what you should eat. Um, you look like you need more iron. Here's what you should eat. Oh, you want to cut back on carbs? Yeah, that's reasonable. You know, another one of my recipes that I have at hand is for cauliflower rice for people who like rice but feel like they shouldn't eat as much rice. And also kind of an introduction to whole grains, those sorts of things. And so I really make it more about like, I will talk to you about these foods and the ways of preparing them and these um, incremental changes that you can make that will kind of gently nudge you in the right direction. Um, but if you really want to plan, you know, let's work with, with a dietitian. That That is completely necessary. I can't do it all myself in Right. Minutes. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just thinking about like the past and also friends who are fat who have, have talked about this, right? Like their doctor will just say like, you should lose weight. And then just like, it just sends them down the spiral of like, okay, but I have a headache. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's so yeah. weird. You mean like, yeah, yeah. Like they're missing the whole reason why the person right, is there yeah. by on, only seeing their weight. Yeah, is yeah. that what you mean? The, the thing is though, I mean, it's not like there are not fat doctors either, right? It's And mm. it's not like there are not doctors with very poor lifestyle habits. There are probably actually, there are many, many doctors. <laughs> <over>. <laughs> yes. I've seen TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So it, it's, I don't think that, we have any monopoly over, we don't have any monopoly over, like, I, I we shouldn't feel superior, I should say, about who we are or where we come from. We're just people, we, we just happen to have a certain set of professional skills. And so it is wrong to come talk to someone from the stance of, you know, I know that it's bad to be fat, so you better not be fat anymore. But why are you here? You know, it's, that doesn't help. Like, in general, and, you know, I think... I, I'm still a work in progress as a doctor too. Like these are, it's it's not always obvious how we should approach our patients. Um, we The modern medical training does emphasize communication a lot more than it used to. And I think I, my, I was at the very beginning of that when we actually got courses in communication. Um, and those courses, you know, can be summed up in as be open-ended and ask why the patient is there and listen to them and then, and then go with that. And so I think I'm hoping, and I am hopeful that again, this next generation will be better. And the, those sorts of experiences will be fewer and far between, but they'll still be there. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the idea of, you know, you talking about having to think about the approach to, different patients, because I'm sure you deal with people from, you know, various socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, and this goes back to talking about like the personal element of uh, talking about food and prescribing food to people. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, let's say, the economic angle of it, mm -hmm. because I, I know some people might think healthy eating is could be expensive for them if they've never done it before. Or you might have some patients who 
have limited incomes and, you know, think like, man, I don't know if I can actually go out and get the things that I need to follow this. How do you have those conversations with patients? Do you have to factor in, you know, these these various elements like, you know, someone that might be suffering from food insecurity Mm -hmm. or someone who, you know, admits that they have limited income like I'm sure that's complicated, but how do, how do you walk that line? How do you do that? Yeah, it, it is complicated. Um, and so I think the first step actually is is asking about it in a very gentle way and a you know mm-hmm. a very non-judgmental way of and and actually the pandemic has made it a little bit easier to ask that. It's normalized mm-hmm. now. Like yeah. the pandemic has made it really hard for some people to get the kind of food that they know is best for them to eat. Has that been an issue for you? Because you know, I have resources, right? So mm-hmm. the first thing is just asking that question. Um, and then I think the other part is to address the I think misconception that eating healthy has to be more expensive. And Mm -hmm. I think that is the kind of healthy eating that that whole Western wellness complex, that industrialized wellness complex that I'm not part of, um, makes it seem right that Mm -hmm. you need to buy Mm superfoods. So superfoods, especially superfoods that get packaged, <laughs> drive me crazy because these, these truly could be superfoods, right? They're very, that what a superfood truly is, is something that has like high nutrient density, whether it's vitamins, minerals, fiber, whatever. And these are typically things that people who come from other cultures have been eating forever. They might be weeds, like, you mm-hmm. know, Moringa, for example, right? Grows like a weed. And now it's being packaged and I think it's expensive. And also it doesn't, it's not food anymore, the way that people process things. Um, All that is to say is that I think people have a concept of health food being a certain kind of food because of the way it's being portrayed in the media. So, you know, there's Mm -hmm. the whole kale and quinoa crowd. I Mm -hmm. love kale and quinoa (laughs) and I'm not going to say that these are not good things and they are actually can be relatively inexpensive, maybe not quinoa so much, but kale is. And so, um, but I do have to acknowledge that it is one of the hardest things to compete with is like the McDonald's dollar menu. I can't say that I can beat that. I I actually cannot say that, but I, in, in one meal, but I propose that if people eat more plants, mostly plants, right? So not meat, not processed foods, not eating out, and kind of rethink how they think about their food budget in terms of I'm going to buy in bulk. Maybe I split it with my neighbors or my extended family. Um, I buy my stuff from the farmer's market. It'll be, you know, the highest in nutrient density because it's the freshest. It'll be the least expensive because it's in season, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, all those good things. Um, And then I buy my my grains and my my beans in bulk. Right. Get all the stuff in bulk. That's not expensive if you kind of average it over time. Um, Mm -hmm. I also like to talk a lot about the value of frozen fruits and vegetables. So while I'm always like, don't eat processed foods, I don't mean that kind of processed foods. I always have some frozen vegetables and some frozen fruit in my freezer. um, And they actually can be higher in uh, amount of vitamins than something that has been sitting on the shelf at Whole Foods for a couple of weeks, honestly, right? So the closer you are to picking something, the more nutrition it has. And most frozen fruits and vegetables are flash frozen uh, close to the time of picking. Um, and that's really inexpensive. I think a lot of us realized that when everyone was pillaging the freezer aisles in the beginning of the pandemic, because we were afraid we we're gonna starve <laughs> to death. And you're like, oh, this is great. This is great. You know, this is really inexpensive. And 
um, you know, it's, and it's convenient, right? So that's the other part of it. That's the other thing. What, I guess this is, this is my treatise on what does the McDonald's dollar value have on me? And so <laughs> it's the fact that it's a dollar. It's the fact that it's fast. So frozen stuff is also fast and it's also cheap. Um, and then the, the final kind of restructuring of how you should, one should think about what is the cost of this to me is what is the cost of your life? What is the cost of your health? And this is not a philosophical thing of you're worth it. This is actually, if you're sick because you're eating the McDonald's dollar menu every single day, you're going to be in the hospital. You're going to miss work. You may not be able to work because you're sick. And maybe these are all things that we can prevent if we get you eating just a little bit better. And so that's the other thing I always like to emphasize. A lot of people think it's all or none. So for that person who relies for economic reasons on the, the value menu, the dollar menu at McDonald's, maybe, you know, for their, maybe that's their lunch because they're, they're, they don't have a lunch break and that's what they can do for lunch. But maybe at dinner, then they start by adding in a salad, whatever it is, you know, add, add something good. Don't always make it about saying you can't have this, say, you know, you can have this. And then eventually people are like, you know, I actually feel better and this wasn't that expensive and it wasn't that hard. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. So I think it would be great for us to just maybe end on where can listeners, if they're interested in your stuff, find your work. These days, I'm all over the place, but I'm about to launch my first cookbook, Spicebox Kitchen. So this is a cookbook that really kind of encapsulates everything I've been talking about, about eating mostly plants, um, about diversifying what we consider to be healthy food, about using kind of the traditional cuisines around the world that have always been largely plant-based and figuring out more interesting ways from those cultures on how to flavor our food because it is all about flavor. So in this case, I focus a lot on spices. And then you can find me on social media at uh, Spicebox Travels um, on Twitter and Instagram and at the Doctor's Spicebox on Facebook. And finally, at my blog, SpiceboxTravels.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Linda. Yeah, have a great day, guys. Thanks again to Linda Shu for being in conversation with us and to Erica Carlos for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.